0: Everyone, welcome to Trust the Trail. We are your outdoor guides, Ariane Petrucci
1: and Scott Jans.
0: This is episode one oh one, the unseen war saving the Hemlocks.
1: We are now on Patreon.com. If you'd like to support Trust the Trail podcast, please check out Patreon.com. Forward slash trust the trail. We would love for you to be a part of our Patreon community. Plus, you can receive our podcast early before it hits iTunes or any of the other podcatchers catcher, pod and get exclusive content just for our patrons.
0: On this episode, we talk bugs and beetles. How one pesky tiny insect named the hemlock woolly alleged is destroying the hemlock trees in the southeast. This insect is affecting the entire ecosystem in the Appalachian Mountains. We share what researchers are doing to fight back and how you can help with the unseen war in the trees. You can always join in on the discussion on our Facebook group page. Just go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Trust the Trail podcast and join our podcast family. Seriously, come hang out with us and be part of that community. It is it is such a fun, engaging uh, resource for everybody.
1: Oh, absolutely. Love it. So this pesky little non-native hemlock woolly adelgid, or we call it HWA, <laughs> is a parasitic insect killing the hemlock trees of the entire Appalachia mountain range in the southeast. Uh, it's, and it's killing them at an alarming rate. Uh, the U.S. Forest Service has estimated that the HWA has already killed Millions of hemlocks across their native range and it continues its devastating march in North Georgia So if you've been hiking in the Shenandoah's or the Smoky Mountains or the Appalachian Trail in northern, Georgia Any of the side trails in the Smokies, you'll notice sometimes that there are needles stuck in the base of of the hemlock trees and this is one of the this was the first defense uh, against the HWA and You'll notice that you, you, you know, you just see these needles in the base of the tree, but actually We asked why that tree and we were I mean it, the answers we got were crazy and It they're strategically placed and we're gonna explain what those needles in the base of the trees are and how really it really is a war right now?
0: Yeah, it's it's very interesting because everyone's heard about the hemlock dyings. and you know everyone's kind of heard that hemlocks are being affected. But learning learning the education and and the the hows and the whys all this is happening, it, it just is very alarming, and it's it's very eye opening. You know, as backpackers, these trees are so important to us.
1: Oh, so, so important, important. And, and we
0: take it for granted.
1: Yeah, and the it kind of it makes you realize that you know we when we talk about backpacking, we talk about hiking, we talk about our you know the everything in the southeast anyway is that we forget that these hemlocks are crucial to our ecosystem. In the Appalachian Mountains and I mean crucial they provide shade for our streams our lakes um, our waterways and they um, they are a integral part in the ecosystem and while we are also concerned about gear (laughs) and we're so concerned about you know all the other stuff that goes on with Backpacking and all the Facebook groups, and you know, making
0: sure your social media yeah, is ready right. to go. <laughs> you know,
1: getting a film crew to going when you're going to go hike the Appalachian Trail, and you know, we're so you know we're so inundated with all that stuff.
0: The, the prep,
1: the prep, that we forget that you know the next generation of backpackers and hikers, these hemlocks could be dead, all of them, and what does that mean? For the Appalachian Mountains. What does that mean for our entire ecosystem? you know 25-30 years down the road and this HWA has done an incredible amount of damage in a very short time and So we're gonna address this issue because we think it's an important issue we think it's something that Um, our outdoor community needs to be aware of and needs to take an active participation in and so it literally is a a war in the tree so next time you're out there look up and say wow there's a war going on right now because it actually is
0: yeah so we were so intrigued by this conversation we had to know more we had to learn more so we traveled directly to the source at the University of North Georgia, um, their ecological protection labs specifically uh, to find the answers that we were looking for to provide the education for all of you. So here is our interview with Stacy Dr- James, program coordinator and Hannah Carroll. We hope you enjoy. So we are sitting here with program coordinator for Environmental Leadership Center at the University of North Georgia with Stacey James. Uh, we also have lab technician Hannah Carroll here. Um, they have devoted their Friday afternoon to spend some time talking about bugs.
1: Absolutely. And I wish we would have had the recorder going for the last hour. <laughs> this, this research area is in a house yes, yes. and you know you've got all these like big buildings around you and we're like oh my god there's so, and then the directions say just oh, just go down the driveway and it's the house and we're just like knocking on someone's front door. <laughs> and we walk in, and there's all this research, cool stuff like microscopes and <laughs> bud netting, and you guys blow us away. This is so much fun. Who would not want to work here?
2: Oh, thank you. It's thank you. very, to very cool. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: So the whole Beetle House uh, thing is—it's a lot more than just a Beetle House. It's a—it's—it's it's a research center. Yes. For this bad little guy that is has come to the united states when in the 1950s
2: yes 1950s
1: and kind of like took over our hemlocks
2: exactly yeah
1: and said hey man you know we're gonna we're gonna do some damage <laughs> and nobody could see this thing coming and how so how did that what's the name of this little guy how did he get here and and what's he doing
2: Okay, yeah, great question. So the hemlock woolly adelgid, also known as HWA, is an invasive, sap sucking piercing pest that came into the United States in the 1950s um, and pretty much spread on check across uh, the Eastern Hemlock's range. Um, and when I say spread on check, it's just this tree um, came over, we believe it came into, um, the HWA came over on an ornamental tree. And once it came over here, it really just started to spread. So the hemlock woolly adelgid started to affect our Eastern hemlocks and just spread along the coast. And they kind of uh, correlated to a cup overflowing. It wasn't just sporadic occurrences of infestation. It just was like a cup overflowing, a wave of spread, and it spread a lot faster going south. Along the east uh, coast of uh, eastern hemlock spread, down south, uh, just because of those mild winters. And then spread a little bit slower going north. Those winters really help to knock back those numbers. And unfortunately, it does kill our trees um, And by that sap-sucking, piercing mechanism. It's got a stylet bundle for a mouth part. give you an idea, it's actually got four stylet bundles as a mouth part that are three times its body length. So when I say the hemlock woolly adelgid is adapted to eating, that's an understatement. Its largest body part is its mouth part. It's three times its body length. They're like hypodermic needles. So they pierce the hemlock, inject that stylet, that mouth part all the way up into the branch and just start to suck the sap of the tree. All the tree stored nutrients and the tree starts to die. So you see the tree start to lose um, its needles. It starts to, the crown starts to thin out. You get transparency where you can see through that tree. Um, and then it starts to not be able to produce new growth anymore. And so slowly just succumbs to death from the infestation of the HWA. So when I say it's a bad bug, it's a really bad bug. It sounds
1: like it's a really bad bug.
2: <laughs> yeah, a really bad bug. And it is an aphid. So, I mean, it, it, it's a bad bug. So,
1: the and I think the thing is, is that... You didn't really start hearing about, it, even though it came in the nineteen fifties, which mm-hmm. blew me away. I I didn't know it'd been here this long. Um, really, I guess I started hearing about it maybe ten, twelve years ago. Mm-hmm. As this, they didn't. They certainly didn't call it a life sap sucking bug, <laughs> which is a great definition of it. It's not if you get angry with somebody, like a friend, you are sap sucking. Uh,
2: aphid. aphid. Um, it, yeah. but it, <laughs> what it is <laughs> but,
1: it, but how long does it take for the hemlocks to actually die because I think that's what's happened like they came out of here but no one really I mean regular people didn't really notice it right away it's taken a long time.
2: Yes, and so the original infestation point was up in Virginia. So the spread, you know, did happen relatively quick in terms of an infestation goes. Um, So we did start to see it here in Georgia a lot later. And let me give you the exact date, but it was kind of... I guess, yeah, the early uh, 2000s is when we really started to see uh, mortality from uh, the HWA here in Georgia, um, but it was here. It was infecting our trees it, the health of the trees were starting to decline. Um, unfortunately, here in the South, because we don't have those intense winters to knock back that HWA number, we can see tree mortality in as little as five to seven years. And the northern range of your eastern hemlocks um, up on the northern side of the east coast because of those nice cold winters, uh, tree mortality after infestation can be as long as 15 to 20 years.
1: See, and I think that's it. It's like, you know, depending on what region of the east coast you are in, I think the news, at least for, me, for my ears, didn't really start happening until like about 10, 12 years ago mm-hmm. in Georgia when it just seems like all of a sudden, all you heard was, "All oh, the hemlocks are dying. The hemlocks are dying," and then driving up, especially going up through the Smokies on Four Forty One, you start seeing it. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. You
1: actually see all the hemlocks that are dead. Mm-hmm. So, um, this is a this is a real issue. So, e- explain to us. Someone might say, "Well, okay, a tree's a tree." Oh,
2: okay. It's more than a tree. But what? <laughs>
1: <laughs> the you, can't say,
2: you can't say a tree's a tree in this, in this
0: environment I know, yeah. I know I' are a little defensive about that comment
1: But the hemlock is a beautiful tree So what is it about the hemlock tree That makes this invasion so dangerous?
2: That is a really important question, um, because we do get that question, why do you care so much it's just a tree? Well, it's not just a tree. It's considered a keystone species, um, meaning that there's so it's more to our ecosystem than just a tree. It's a habitat, it's a food source. And what, one of the things that a lot of people neglect to see is it's a big candidate or protector of our water quality. It's found in your riparian zone, so along your stream banks, your rivers, and it plays a very crucial role there. It stabilizes those banks, it reduces erosion, Ocean, it reduces contaminants getting into our waterways and it protects our nice clean water. It also helps shade that river year round. It's an evergreen. We know Georgia can be quite wonky with our weather as this year is saying. <laughs> That's my very technical term there, wonky. Um, so you get early temperatures in the spring that are very high. That could be detrimental to your fish you know, your eggs in there, your macro invertebrates. You really want to protect those for those temperature fluctuations. So your evergreens are going to provide that year-round constant shading. Protect them from those early hot spells in the spring before your deciduous trees have those leaf on. So they play an important role there, protecting the uh, quality of water temperature as well. So um, if we see the species wiped out, not only do you lose a food source, a habitat, but you're going to start to see those stream banks erode, become undercut. You're going to increase your sediment loading into your waterways so those clean waters are not going to be clear anymore they're going to become more turbid Um, you're going to see in those sediments also are going to fill up those caches all those nice rock crevices so you're going to see a decline in even your macroinvertebrate species you're going to see a decline in your fish population because those eggs need those cracks and crevices to be into so it's just a really important tree because it's it's protecting our waterways it's what's keeping our mountain streams so clean and beautiful that we all love to use them
1: so, when, when I go camping, and we go hiking, we're backpacking, we, we see these needles in the tree, in the stump of the tree, um, or sometimes we see tags in them, or they're marked a certain way. Um, what are they? I mean, like, what, what's, what was the first round of kind of like, we need to fight this, the, the sap sucking aphid. Mm-hmm, what? Yes. <laughs> yeah. getting into it now. He
0: yeah, likes that term. I
2: shouldn't have that ever.
1: That'll be my new go to phrase. Um, <laughs> like, what was the first line of defense? I just started noticing those again. It was probably like eight years ago, nine years ago, um, when just out of the blue, you'd come up to one of these trees, big trees, that had like four or five needles. In those things, and what what was is that was that the first line of defense, or how how did that work?
2: Um, well, actually, they've been combination treating the trees with chemical and biological treatments uh, since the beginning uh, that it started to occur. Um, so originally, they started to use like uh, remote sensing uh, using aerial photography and looking at the hemlocks from above, finding your healthy groves versus infected groves using unique color signatures. And then they'd go out and go, okay, here's an infected grove, we need to go out and treat it. So they did chemical treatments with soil injections. Um, U.S. Forest Service did a majority of this. I mean, then they still are our big workhorse for that chemical injection side. But then they also went in and did uh, beetle releases. And so they've been doing it really from the beginning of the infestation. And uh, we've got the Southern Research Station really heading that up, telling them what the treatments options are. And so they've had a lot of guidance along the way. But Forest Service has really been treating from the beginning. I mean, early 2000s, I remember being at Smithgall Woods, watching them do tree injections, the next year doing beetle releases. I mean, they've been fighting the battle since the infestation hit the state line. Wow. So,
0: what makes the eastern hemlock so susceptible? Why are other trees not dying off because of this infestation of the HWA?
3: Yeah, uh,
2: I'll let Hannah jump in. I know she can answer these two Yeah, I so uh, the
3: hemlock specifically susceptible because the HWA actually came over from Japan. And we also have the hemlock here, but we don't have those natural predators of the HWA to kind of cut back their population size. So that's kind of what makes us more susceptible to the infestation. I gotcha.
2: And there's also no host resistance. So yeah. in its native range, it would have co-evolved with this invasive, well, it's not invasive, this natural um, stressor to the tree. And so it, it would have some natural defenses. And it would also have over 40 natural predators in its native range in Asia. And so wow. Yeah. <laughs> and we have... None. What, two? Yeah, 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 <laughs> well, no natural that. no yeah. natural and no host resistance. Then you also have your west coast, you have your western hemlocks. They too have an HWA, they've co-evolved, they have some host resistance, they have natural predators. It's a natural check and balance. This is a natural stressor for their hemlock species. And so there's a check and balance. It doesn't destroy their trees. There's predators, there's host resistance. It's It's a good check and balance there. Unfortunately, here on the East Coast, we do not have that check and balance. We do not have that natural life cycle occurring. What we are having is an invasive pest coming in with no host resistance the Eastern Hemlock has no resistance, and we have no natural predators. So US Forest Service is jumping in, Ejecting trees, kind of creating that host resistance and mm-hmm. getting it into the trees so they don't succumb to it. And then you've got UGA, you've got Young Harris College, you've got Georgia Forestry Commission, and you've got, you know, UNG. And we're out there, we're breeding the beetles and they're getting them out for us. And, and a, a big, Jim Sullivan, who is a Georgia Forestry Commission, he tracked the spread of the HWA from the very beginning when it touched our state. And so he's also the gentleman that does our beetle releases. He knows the areas of the critical needs. He's tracked it across the state. And so when we give him our beetles, we have the utmost confidence they're going to those critical areas, the trees that are dying the fastest, the ones that are succumbing. He knows that Forest Service is not treating those areas, and he's putting those beetles where they're needed the most. Is there a concern at all for complete extinction of the hemlocks, the eastern hemlocks? I would say most definitely. That could be a concern long-term. I mean, there is hope for the hemlocks. That's always the most important to focus on. There is hope for the hemlocks. As we get beetles out there, they are establishing, they're jumping in, they're saving trees. Uh, Forest Service is chemically treating, but they're limited on how much they can treat, whereas we're not limited on beetle releases numbers. And so they treat, and we hope to get the beetles established where they move in as the trees come out of chemical treatment and save them. But if it doesn't work, yes, that is a very big concern that we could lose them, much like our American chestnuts.
1: I was, I I think I'm like, I mean, so happy we came out here today, but I think the the biggest hope and new thing I've learned was how much the Forest Service plays a part in this whole thing. You know, Mm -hmm. when we go out camping, we go out backpacking, hiking, enjoy the outdoors, Usually you're in a designated area, whether it's a state park, national park, wilderness area, national forest. Um, And I guess you just, you don't really see these guys all the time. You just don't run into them unless there's a ranger that comes by in his pickup truck. Um, How important is the forestry, the forest service, as far as, you know, like you were talking today, like how they were almost like, you know, picking and choosing what trees were more important than others just for your safety. I mean, along the road in a camp area, you know, we always talk about the widow maker. Don't pitch a tent near a dead tree because you don't want to be, you know, smashed, right? Yeah. And that happens. That, that's a real issue every year. You know, people, you know, get killed or severely injured because of a dead tree falling them up but but you're telling me the forest service when they go in that's the one tree that they try to get to first the ones that are more susceptible to you know in a campground Mm -hmm. i don't think people realize that how what's your relationship what the, the the school's relationship with the forest service to try to you know get this guy
2: Oh, yeah. Well, we work very close. Um, all of our research, all of our release sites are in hemlock conservation areas inside the U.S. Forest Service lands. They're designated areas where the hemlocks are protected by U.S. Forest Service. Um, they also work very closely with us to correlate where they're doing their treatments and where we are doing our treatments. But like you said, um, you know, it campers. You want a water source, right? Yeah. You want that's the ideal campsite yeah. to yeah. have that nice, beautiful water source. Well, your hemlocks are in your riparian zone. They're in that water. They're around your water. So, a forest service is going to try and target, you know, your campgrounds, your roadways, and stuff with those chemical treatments. It saves that tree five to seven years. It puts that tree under treatment. So, it ensures that not only that you're getting that shade, you're getting that nice water source, but a safe campground. So, they really do target um, a safety first, then also economic concerns too. If this tree dies, how expensive is it going to be to take out? They also target the really large ones, your superstory, your overstory trees, your oldest ones, the ones that are going to be the sapling bearers, the ones that are going to be producing the new ones. So they're very methodical in their treatments and they are very cautious on their chemical. People go, oh chemical, chemical, chemical. They are very cautious. They know exactly how many trees they're going to treat in an area and they do not exceed that. If they're getting close to a waterway with a soil injection, they may switch to a different chemical that would allow them to do a basal trunk spray which would prevent it from even touching the soil or they'd only inject one side of the tree to prevent any leaching into your waterways. They are very very cautious with it, but they're very effective with it too.
1: I that's amazing. I mean, you just don't see that. You know, you just you just you would never the normal person that goes out camping would never ever understand how important their job is
0: oh, the, the scope of the efforts alone are it's just something that we don't think about mm-hmm. you know when you're packing your bag at home you're not thinking about everything and all the people that are behind these efforts to save the forest um, in the manner in which we enjoy so it's pretty unbelievable I, kn- I know I first I, I birth, first both met you um, at Dahlonega Fest this past year um, and you guys had visuals on w- what these these HWAs look like, what the beetles look like, and, and that's when it turned for me from this. I understand that the hemlocks are dying. I understand that there's this invasive bug that is bad.
1: It's, um, a sap it's sucking, <laughs> it's piercing. Piercing. I <laughs> got the piercing. I, <laughs> I got to remember the piercing. <laughs>
0: You know, it, but it was that visual of, of, of the impact of what it's actually having on that. So because this is a podcast and our listeners can't see it, what are they looking for on the underneath of the trees?
3: Okay, so whenever you're looking at a branch, it's... So you're going to flip it over so the HWA actually infect the underside of the branches and it almost looks like cotton balls but really really tiny cotton balls and if you've ever had like a mealy bug infestation in your garden that's basically what you're looking for is tiny little soft-bodied insects and they secrete this wool that surrounds them and they lay their eggs in that too but that's what you're looking for basically it's just a bunch of really tiny cotton balls and they can be laid on pretty thick too.
2: But is that wall always present, though? See, it is not.
3: Yeah, so in the summer months, they actually have another life stage where they're really small and dark and black, and they're really hard to spot. And unless you're involved in a lab like this, it's kind of hard to pick them out. But there are a lot of good resources um, that can kind of help you see if they are present in those months. So,
1: so please don't grab them and put them... On your clothing, or <laughs> yeah. carry them to show and tell. That would be very bad because they—that's how they spread, right? I mean, how do how do these things spread?
2: Yeah, well, exactly like you said. They um, and like Hannah just said, it's like a cotton ball. So you can imagine, it's just almost like dog hair. It just sticks to you really easy. We know
1: that. We have two dogs. Absolutely. Yeah,
2: it's just we know like dog that. Hair you just anybody. barely even brushed against them wearing your black pants and all of a sudden it stuck to you. That is the adelgid's uh, egg mm-hmm. sac, that ovus that white wool. Um, and... That's how clingy it is. And so it's really spread really easy by animal dispersion, bird dispersion, wind. I There's a lot of things. Biological vectors are a big thing. Hikers. I mean, mm-hmm. we're we're all notorious for probably having one cling to us. You walk by a hemlock, it's clung to your sleeve, you didn't realize that you carried it on. So the mm-hmm. level of infestation in a forest, even in a site, can vary drastically from one tree to another tree. And and even within a small grove of trees, you can see a real heavy, high density of HWA on one tree and go to the next tree and find very, maybe one or two. And so it can really vary uh, just from tree to tree within a site.
1: And, and by the way, you know, it's still more important to look for ticks on your body. Um,
0: <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 I'm I don't, pretty adamant that this is pretty important.
1: I know, I can hear people going, oh, great, now I'm killing hemlocks, you know. Um, but it and it's... By looking at the map, and we're, we're gonna, I got, I wish you'd try to get a photograph or a mm-hmm. picture of that because when you guys see the spread of this thing, it is huge area. I mean, it, it's, it's just, it's just crazy. So, okay, so we keep on talking about the beetle. You guys have heard us talk about the beetle. Mm-hmm. So, the, I guess, the fight, fighting the good fight, right? Mm-hmm. For the hashtag. Hope for the hemlock. Yeah. Uh,
2: um, we, we should get that going. <laughs>
1: um, is these these guys these these little beetles that eat these sap sucking piercing. Bad bugs. Bad bugs. Yeah. So talk about that because that's really where this whole place, this research center, that's where it's really that's where you got to shine. I mean, that's that's really the mean potatoes of the fight, right?
2: Yeah, that's the beetles, yeah. Um, so you, we mentioned U.S. Forest Service. So they're doing the chemical treatment. And uh, what we do is the biological treatment of this invasive pest. So we rear its natural predators, which are two different species of beetles this year that we're focusing on. Uh, one is from its native range. This is the suge, or we can call it the ST beetle. Um, it's really easy to pronounce St. not so Easy on the Siskimnasuge, but uh, it is a Japanese. Says you. <laughs> so the U.S.T. beetle is actually um, a Japanese beetle native to the H.W.A.'s range, and it's one that it's actually in your ladybug family. It's a cochlea. so that's kind of neat. It looks like just a black ladybug. A very small ladybug, sesame size, And so it's uh really unique that its life cycle is uh very synchronized with the bad bug, your HWA. And so it's a very effective predator. It feeds on the HWA year-round and it consumes it in its entirety. I mean, it's methodical. It eats the entire dungeon, it eats its eggs, it eats that dormant aphid that Hannah was talking about that you can find in the summer. It eats every part of it. And then there's another species called the Laracobius negrinus, LN, we'll call it LN. And that one comes from our West Coast, from your Western Hemlock. So it's an American beetle that we bring over from the West Coast here. Um, And that one feeds on one of the life cycles of the bad bug or HWA. But it's a very voracious eater. Um, It's... It looks like a war zone when you look at a branch that the LN's gone through. Whereas the ST is very methodical and consumes it in its entirety. You look at the LN after it's gone through, and there's blood splatters, and the ovus, the, that wall's just ripped apart. I mean, it it's a very violent eater. And, what, and, and these are the good guys. Yeah. These are the good guys. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're effective predators. Don't, don't,
1: don't get these guys angry. So, um, of course, that can only be seen under a microscope, right?
2: Well, when you be like, too? Oh, okay. (laughs) Microscope, you'd be like naked eye. You can actually see when you look at a a branch that the LN has ripped through. I mean it does. Every one of those fluffy cotton balls is just ripped open. I mean that's a good sign that you've had a predator beetle attack that branch.
1: Right, right. (laughs) So And so which which beetle, um, I wish we could bring all you guys here. (laughs) Because this is a fascinating place. So, you pulled out a, I think it was like a five-gallon bucket in the refrigerator. Yeah. Full of hemlock, right? Mm
2: -hmm. Infected hemlock brand.
1: Infected hemlock. And you said that five-gallon bucket feeds how many of these guys?
2: Oh, that's one week's worth of food. one
1: week's worth of food.
2: Yes, for the both species that we're rearing right now, that's one week's worth of food because um, we don't want lab-adapted beetles, so we don't give them any alternative food source. These are specialized predators. They only eat the hemlock woolly so we don't want to give them an artificial food. We want them to be trained predators, so we only feed them what their natural diet is. And that being said, if the HWA is not available, they die. And so there's not a concern with them becoming a generalist and affecting anything else. They will only consume that adelgid. And so you could make an artificial diet no different than we could take artificial vitamins versus eating our fruits and vegetables. We could give them an artificial diet, but we choose not to. We want them to be field ready. This is our warriors, you know. We're yeah. like training our own little warriors. Right. we <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah, right. I got our own army going. <laughs>
1: There's a part of me that's a little scared right now. I don't want these guys to turn on humans at all. We'd be—I uh, think—we'd be in trouble.
0: Well, I think it was very interesting, Hannah. You were explaining to me that um, we were we were looking at these tents, um, mm-hmm. full of different variations of life stages mm-hmm. of these beetles, and the question was: is is once they're released into Uh, you know, a true wilderness versus a lab, how do they adapt? Like, how how do they go through that adaptation process? And what do you do here in the lab to ensure that they survive and do the job they're bred to do?
3: So we have artificial temperatures and humidities inside our lab. So we'll actually, like, spray them with water to simulate rain and put them outside and let them feel, like, sunlight Mm -hmm. and... Kind of treat them like people in a way, if you like. <laughs> but,
1: Walk but, your dog, get yeah. out there.
3: But, but, yeah, we have to kind of put them through, like, the trials before we just release them outside. Because they, they're going to go through, like, a shock, basically, if yeah. they're in a lab and they go through these light cycles and they have specific temperatures that they're at and humidities that they're at. And then you just throw them outside, especially with our weather we're having right now. it's You go day to day and it can be 30 degrees warmer the next day than it was the day before. So, yeah, it's really important for us to kind of acclimate them to being in the natural environment because we don't want to put all this time and effort into rearing them and put them in trees. And that weekend it's really cold right. and they just die. Well, <laughs> how
0: much time does it take for you to rear them and, and release them? What, what does that look like? Um, okay,
2: so we usually, um, right now it takes about a month to go from an egg to a beetle emergence. And then it takes another month for sexual maturity. So we actually will hold them until they're sexually mature before we release them, because we want them to be a breeding population out there. And um, they're very quick to respond to each other. So we try to keep (laughs) the sexes separated. So absentees makes the heart grow fonder. And that way when we release them, they should be breeding pretty quick in the field. Um, but the goal is, you know, field adaption. We really try to do field adaptions. We also look at insectaries. So we don't have lab adapted beetles. We would have insectaries, places in the state where we recover the beetles and just move them from location to location. Um, and that just prevents that kind of lab adaption. Um, but right now, our most successful breeding programs have been in, uh, in the lab. And so that's why you have three labs in the state of Georgia rearing these beetles. <laughs> wow! So are
1: you, when you're talking about you know not really or you know releasing them in the cold, how hardy are these guys? So we know that the um, the HWA is hardy enough to survive the northern area. It takes longer for them to kill the hemlocks,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: they can survive cold winters. Yes.
2: Yes, and so you might even seen from our holding temperatures that our two beetles. Have a very different preference uh, for peak breeding conditions your laracobius beetle is definitely more cold tolerant um this is skimnus suge or st beetle
3: um is one that we're finding is very southern acclimated mm-hmm. it likes it here in the south one, and yeah one interesting thing was like up north there's a lot of studies that have kind of dismissed the st beetle because it is pretty susceptible to colder temperatures but down in the south it's a lot warmer so i think that's why we're seeing such Success with this beetle that hasn't really been seen in northern states. So
1: uh, a long freeze. uh, Let's say below um, 32 Mm -hmm. for an extended period of time uh, Would are they both are both or all three? I guess the HWA the uh, ST and the LN are they all susceptible to cold where they would all die well, I mean... Is that a possible?
2: It is possible, but like that kind of goes to why we field adapt them. If you notice with our LN, when I opened that, that incubator is at 8C right now. Yeah. And yep. so, did you see them? No, they're buried in the foliage. Yeah. Yeah. They They know how to kind of hunker right. in and stay yep. warm. And so that that's where it's so important that we kind of field adapt them so that they, when they get out there, they know to hunker in if it's wind or it's torrential downpour. So they
1: learn they to survive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely.
2: And those LN that we looked at are field recovered beetles brought into the lab for rearing. And so yeah, it's really important that they do that. Um, but it is important too that we do have those winters, that we do have that frost because it does not back that HWA population. Mm-hmm. And right. so unfortunately this year having a mild winter, we're seeing a very high density of the HWA in the field. So next week's little cold snap, as much as I don't want it to affect my fruit trees, I'm kind of <laughs> hopeful that it does knock back the HWA a little bit. Right.
1: Um, how successful has the project been? I mean, I like, I guess.
2: Well, how do you determine yeah, the how do you rate,
1: determine rate of de- success?
2: Yeah. That's a great question. So, obviously, we were biased. We, were, <laughs> you know, we rear the beetle, so we want to go, woo, it works. And you visually, you do
3: see the difference. I mean, Hannah. Yeah, I yeah. know walking into a site where there hasn't been a beetle treatment, you'll see a lot of like what you usually see on, in the AT, where you just see a ton of hemlocks that are dead and needle on the ground and like. Knocked over dead trees. Whenever we get to our release sites, how, like what percentage would you say oh. health increase? At least like yeah. fifty. I would yeah. fifty would be like my low ball. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and,
0: and how long have they been released into that environment for, for you to see an impact? The
3: one that I'm talking about is what like twenty minutes from Dahlonega, Georgia, and I th- it was ten years. Okay. After and oh, that was the last release of that one. It actually had
2: released for several years before that too. Oh, okay. but, wow. Yeah, but okay. it was ten years since we that last species
3: was released there. Okay. But still yeah. you're talking
0: about nineteen fifties to yeah. now. I mean mm-hmm. that's still mm-hmm. that's a pretty good success rate as mm-hmm. long as mm-hmm. the HWA
3: isn't overtaking the beetle yeah, population. And, and that's one mm-hmm. way that we are trying to look at the success rate is with the larva traps. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm yeah larva traps we also do uh forest health uh assessments of the tree put it in a quantitative form take our subjective viewpoint out so we do um health scoring and analysis of the trees looking at transparency uh, foliage transparency crown density the percent new growth uh we look at the delgids uh density on the total twig versus just concentrated on new growth i mean there's a lot of factors we look at so we put it in a quantitative number form so we take out our subjective Viewpoint.
1: Are you seeing new growth in the areas that the Beatles are being successful?
2: Yes, definitely. You
1: are seeing new growth.
2: Yes. And that's usually when you start to see a hemlock that's not able to produce new growth, that's the worst sign ever. Because usually you see the crown density go down, foliage transparency increase, So it starts to lose needles. You see needle discoloration. And then when you see that tree stop producing new growth, that's this tree's natural way of trying to like not look appetizing to the indulgent. Look, I don't have anything for you. Move on. But unfortunately, sometimes that tree can take it so far, it can't recover. So if it starts producing new growth, that's a really bad sign. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, unfortunately, we have to have a tree at a certain level of health to even justify a beetle release because there may not be a turnaround on it. So if it doesn't have new growth, unfortunately, we probably wouldn't do a beetle release on it. But if it even has the smallest amount of new growth, you can put a beetle release on it, come back the next year, and start to see new growth over that entire tree. So we don't call it branch dieback or crown or uh, death. We call it dieback, meaning it's just... So if giving a relief from that adelgid number, it could be as simple as you squeezing all those adelgids off that branch or spraying them off with the hose. It doesn't matter. Just physically remove them from that tree. You'll start to see new growth appear again because ed hemlocks actually have new growth in the fall and the spring. So knocking that adelgid off, that stressor off that tree, letting that tree actually obtain its nutrients, you'll see new growth turn around really fast. That's the good
0: news. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I <laughs> there's a lot of
2: good news, actually. But. <laughs> yeah. So we've seen trees from a state where we thought, oh, wow, this one, we're losing it. Yeah. And we do a beetle release, come back the next season, it's, oh,
3: it well, looks so good. You know, look at new growth, like low delgid. Yay. Another thing. So, like, once we do release the beetles, I think it's important to go back and see if they've been able to establish themselves there. Mm-hmm. So, like, what you were saying about, like, would, like, a winner knock them all out? We actually go back after, like, 10 years. And we'll put these nets under trees that have been released on, and we look in the jars to see if there's still the presence of the beetle that we had released 10 years before. Oh, wow. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so that's that's what our larva sorting is. We're looking for the larva of beetles that have been released 10 years prior, and we've actually had success Mm -hmm. in
2: that. And and we also send those off for genetic testing, so we're one hundred percent confident that we not only found that larva, but it is not one of our native species or anything like that. So we are very confident in our results.
1: So the the I guess the initial problem was that nobody nobody was eating these HWA Mm -hmm. (laughs) like they're just you know they were free to do whatever they want to. Is the um, are the beetles are they? prone to being a, you know, is there another predator that's eating them? Are they acceptable to...
2: Well, just general predation, mm-hmm. gotcha. uh, spiders, birds, gotcha. you know, anything that's going to eat an insect. Unfortunately, they'll eat our beetles as well. Okay. So they're no, they're not immune to yep, predation. Yep. Okay. I mean, but it's just, it's it's the natural life cycle. Right,
0: right, right, right. And we right. want
2: that. We want, you know, they're to have check and balance just mm-hmm. the same as we want the adelgid. That's what we're just trying to do is create a check and so balance.
1: So that's really the goal is to have a balance in the forest. Yes, you exactly. You know, and so... Not one species has a carte blanche food source to do whatever it wants and kill, kill the hemlock.
3: Mm-hmm. And in
1: this case, killing the hemlock is detrimental to a whole domino effect mm-hmm. in, in the forest. Because I would imagine that if the hemlock got to the point where it, was, it did change the ecosystem, which is a possibility, mm-hmm. that your campgrounds would, would close because if you have if you don't have clean water you know and all these hemlocks can fall
2: mm-hmm. it's just
1: better to close the site
2: yeah it, it would be it's too it costly for them to come in absolutely. and remove them all. And so you would see a decline in your campsites available. Then you would start to see a decline in your water quality. Your fishing spots will start to be eliminated. Those nice, easy walkway into your waterways, they're not going to be there. It's going right. to be undercut. You know, you're not going to have so much river access anymore. So it will be a domino effect. That's a great description.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I know that you guys released uh, the beetles at one of our favorite places. Um, it's... Dockery Lake mm-hmm. in northern Georgia and just the effects that I think there were about three hemlocks there that had gone mm-hmm. and they've all fallen mm-hmm. they they almost crushed the bathroom area well, like a year and a half ago but they've all fallen yeah. and they of course you know the the forest or the uh, the forestry came in and, and cut them all down and and cleared the way but that was one example of just three large hemlocks that were dead mm-hmm. that almost, well, I remember driving through there one time and I couldn't drive through
2: mm-hmm. because
1: the hemlock had fallen over the road. Um, and But you, you guys have had success now with the beetle in that area, correct?
2: Yes, and that area actually has chemical and beetle right. releases. So you do see a variation in tree health. And the goal is to kind of, um, have those trees that are coming out of chemical treatment, having the beetles established in that area and moving in. Um, but it is important. Like what you said right now, just how quick you can lose these hemlocks and how quick their overall health has declined. I mean, in just two decades, I have always hiked and camped in this area. Healthy hemlocks were a predominant species in this area. I, to me, a healthy hemlock was something just visually imprinted in my head. Here we go, two decades later, my student workers, I bring them out. We're driving down the road, and they go, what? Is that a hemlock? And it was a healthy hemlock. They had gone so long without seeing a healthy hemlock. It looked like a different species to them. Mm -hmm. So that's why I tell people, get out there and enjoy those hemlocks. See them now. There's hope for them, but their health is declining. So these healthy hemlocks are becoming rarer and rarer and rarer to see. Forest Service is chemically treating them so those are your best ones that have gone through two cycles of chemical treatment these areas where we've released beetles they're increasing their health and they're getting better and you're getting healthy hemlocks but you know they're we treat in very isolated areas and we're treating in the center of the forest, working outward and so it's it's important to get out there and appreciate them now while they're healthy and get to see them because i didn't realize until my student workers came back and were like i didn't know they looked like that because they're just so used to seeing infected hemlocks now. In a two-decade span, our has it's changed so much of what a hemlock characteristic is.
0: So how can everyday people like Scott and I <laughs> and our <laughs> listeners, how can, how can we help with everything that you have done with this conservation effort to you know, save
2: the hemlocks? Like, what can we do? What do we look out for? That's, how can we help? That's a great question because everyone has a part to play. Everybody does. We need everybody's help. So I guess the first thing is identify whether you have a hemlock. You know, look at that conical shape. Look for that evergreen, those really small needles as leaves. Identify if you have a hemlock. Once you know if you have a hemlock, flip that branch over. In the your you know, your fall to pretty much early summer, you're gonna look for that presence of the white wool. In your summer months, you can identify it. You might need a magnification glass, but it's gonna look like a Sesame seed kind of at the needle base, and it will have a white margin around it. If you identify that you have that hemlock woolly adelgid, then you want to look at treatment options, whether it's a chemical, it's a mechanical removal, like I said, spraying it off with the hose. There is beetle options as well for the biological, or you might be lucky and be close to a hemlock conservation area where our beetles might come to your tree. (laughs) Um, But I think the easiest thing that everybody can do is go to Hemlock Fest. In Dahlonega, the first weekend in November every year is Hemlock Fest. This is a great weekend-long music festival. All the proceeds go to support the Beetle Labs, the Beetle Team, um, and to give you an idea, that's not just that. This year alone, this one weekend concert has bought over 2,000 beetles and released them throughout the state of Georgia, not on private lands in hemlock conservation areas for campers, for hikers, for everyone to benefit to save the trees. And so if everyone wants to play a part, just go to the music festival. It's that easy. <laughs> I was blown
0: away when you said that uh, the um, the amount of what what most of us do just for sheer enjoyment actually mm-hmm. goes to a huge cause. And to and to think 2,000 Beatles being released and, and what they can do, what they can do against Mm -hmm. the adelgid
2: I I was that's pretty cool
1: And, and they're not it's not like they're inexpensive you're saying how much per beetle Oh, yeah. Which is
2: it? They're $5, so they spent $10,000 this year alone. They've done this every <laughs> this year. Every year now for, you know, over a decade. I think it's 15 years now. Yeah. And they bought beetles every year. They also donate funds to every one of the beetle labs and to um, help support. Uh, Jim Sullivan goes out and takes care of all of us, so we take care of Jim, and he feeds all our beetles and collects the foliage and releases. So it's just, I call it the beetle team. And so they've done this for over a decade where they put on a week along long music festival, it's all run off solar power it's you know recycling everywhere yeah. it's a very low impact there's canoeing they do the, uh, the hip walk effigy where you get a like shoot firing arrows f- at fire
3: spear through. and throw it at a him a yeah. yeah. I mean, oh, That's awesome. And then, <laughs>
2: and then all the benefits from it go to our labs and so they pay for my student workers for an entire yeah. year to collect data and this helps them bridge the gap between application and education so it really helps students I mean these are our future warriors so not only I'm building a warrior with my beetles and my students are my warriors too and they're spreading the word mm-hmm. and so I think that's just really it is that engagement that education that Everyone has a part to play, and it can really be as easy as going to a music concert.
1: So, people that don't live out here that are listening to our podcast, like in California, other states, can is there can they can they donate on Hamlock Fest? Yes, can they make a donation?
2: Definitely, okay. it all runs off donations. There's silent auctions. I mean, it's. All donations, everything there nonprofit, and it's put on by the Lumpkin Coalition here. I mean, we're really unique in the state that our biological efforts are funded by a music concert. I mean, how cool is that? Only in Georgia. Yeah, Yeah,
1: absolutely.
2: (laughs) And it's a really wonderful festival, so when you go there, it's all homemade goods, and it's the first weekend of November, so do your Christmas shopping there. Support those vendors, because all of those vendors give back a percent of their proceeds to Hemlock Fest to give to us, to give to beetle releases, to give to increase the research, the rearing, everything. And they also support the American Chestnuts as well. So you're not just one. They are really multifaceted.
1: And you were saying the state of Georgia has been really responsive to the Hemlock issue in in uh, out here, right? I mean, the state of Georgia actually is, is all, it's, it's all one big team.
2: Oh, yes. And that's why we called our beetle team. It's not UGA's lab, University of North Georgia, Young Harris's lab, Georgia Forestry Commission and Forest Service by themselves. No, we consider it a beetle team. Yeah. And so we get together, we do um, science symposiums, uh, educational outreaches together. They are doing civil culture approach, too, where they're even looking at sunlighting hemlocks to increase the tree health. Uh, and so we really communicate and engage. Um, they give me research permits so that we can do this on Forest Service land. And I mean, not only that, I mean, we've got traps even in our ranger camp here in town. And so it it's even crossing over to the military at this point because wow. you know if we lose it we lose a really bad battle i mean yeah
1: oh yeah it's a war right now
2: it is a war absolutely and just because we're at a military school yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i mean we're all warriors but no but i think it's really important that we do really remember that that it, and it's citizens too i mean there's save georgia hemlocks that are going out there and planting the trees and a volunteer bases coming out and helping treat trees and and so, we're not alone in this fight. Mm-hmm. There's many, many parties fighting this battle.
1: Well, it, and it, it needs to be because the hemlock is absolutely crucial out here. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I can't stress that enough. I'm, I'm it If we lose the hemlocks, we lose a lot. We're talking about the Kanasauga River and the Cajada Wilderness. Mm-hmm. The Conasaga River is one of the cleanest rivers in the country. Cleanest. It's also got some of the most Um, rare species of fish in the United States. They do snorkeling out there all the time. And they teach um, that you look at all these species of fish and we lose the hemlocks. We could literally lose that river. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's how important this is. So uh, super appreciate you guys being on our podcast. I think it's important that we uh, let our listeners know that when you're out there hiking And backpacking and camping, there's a lot more to your campsite than meets the eye. There's a battle going on (laughs) up in the trees in the southeastern part of the United States. And so think about that battle. And next time someone mentions the Beatles, it's not just, you know, the group uh, that came over in the 60s. (laughs) Don't don't start singing Hey Jude. It's like a real war and, and, uh, you know, Uh, They need your help, right?
2: Yeah, definitely. Everyone has a part to play.
1: So thank you guys so much for being a part of the podcast.
2: Thank you for allowing us to
0: share. (laughs) This has been so much fun. I totally geek out on this stuff. So this has been particularly a very special time, not only to get to meet with you guys. um, I've been thinking about this for a long time, ever since we met at Dahlonega Fest, but to get to see the intimacy of what you have such a part in, in, in protecting the hemlocks, seeing it, you know, getting to, like, come as close to touching it as we can, um, and just getting to see it so abruptly and what we're faced with, it's it's pretty special. So thank you guys so much for everything you do and for being part of the podcast and informing a lot of people, not just us. Yeah, no, thank you, guys. Thank you. All
1: right. So that was a great interview. Uh, so enjoyed meeting those two. We had a great time. They are, uh, we had so much fun. I mean, we were <laughs> laughing. We had so much fun. So thank you guys so much for taking the time and educating us and how we can help and we can take an active role in, in, in helping you save our hemlock trees. So thank you guys so much for listening. For more information on how to get involved, please go to hemlockfest.org where you can make a donation and help save our existing hemlocks. It's super important that the hiking community, the backpacking community, the outdoor community get involved because this is your nature. This, you know, you know, once they're gone, they're gone. So please, please, please get involved. If you enjoy this podcast, please post a comment on iTunes. Um, We'd love to hear from you. It helps spread the word about our podcast and any other other favorite podcasters. Go ahead and please. Give us a review. We'd really appreciate it. The more comments, the more people get introduced to Trusted Trail Podcast. shout out to our new Facebook members. We love you guys. And definitely our Patreons, Rick, Jerry, Shirley, Chuck, John Phillips, Gary, Suzanne Johnson, Brad Wolf, and Bill Cottrell. Really appreciate it. Our podcasts are always available on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, and Radio Public. That is available on both iOS and Android. You can also follow us on Instagram, Trust the Trail, and our Facebook page, Trust the Trail. Uh, Please come and follow. We hope that you guys are having a great year. You're getting outside, and you're being epic in your adventure on the trail. Remember, the trail gives you guys everything you need, so...
0: Trust the trail.
1: Bye, you guys. Bye.